With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, everyone. Tennis.com podcast once again. Ed McGrogan here with Steve Tigner. Today's podcast, we're going to do do this one a little bit differently. I, I actually want to pay homage to two, two sort of uh, events that have come and gone now. Um, we will not only get to talk tennis, and we will start with Rome right away, but uh, Steve and I are going to do a little Mad Men discussion here. We both watch a show. The finale just ended um, just, you know, yesterday as we we're uh, still kind of digesting it a little bit. And I thought I'd pay respect to uh, another podcast I used to listen to, which is also going by the wayside, the, the BS Report on ESPN with Bill Simmons. He, he often brought in sport and pop culture. That is yet another, uh, whatever you, your opinion of him is, that was another enjoyable time of mind that uh, is not with us. For uh, So I think we'll we'll bring that over to this podcast. And if you haven't watched the show, you, can, uh, you probably should avoid it. And if you don't watch the show to begin with, you can just hit stop at that point. So does that sound good to you, Steve? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, Mad Men's been around so long, you know, we got to, it's been off and on for about 10 years. We, we should say something about it, I think. We should. We've, we've every so often bring in some, uh, some non-tennis discussion here. And um, when, you, when you hold the, the strings to the podcast, you are entitled, <laughs> you're entitled to those liberties, exactly. So we'll get to Don and all that in a little bit. Um, we'll start with the leading man in Rome and beyond and and that's clearly Novak Djokovic. Um, it's it's really seeming that you know this is it's almost feels to me like this is an even more mature version of Djokovic's just exceptional 2011 year. And I don't and I and I don't want to even minimize that by even even one percent. That was such a remarkable year. Um, you know, pretty much won everything except the French Open, and that, of course, is going to be the goal here now. With, you know, with Djokovic having won every Masters and you know Slam, there's only been one this year, of course, up to up to this point. Um, it's 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 really, as you say, he knows it's his best chance to win Paris, and boy, it's going to be really tough to swallow if he doesn't after what we've seen already. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't, you know, it's been, it seems so, he seems so solid right now. I actually hadn't even thought about what it would be like if he doesn't win this year. Um, you know, I thought, I thought his match against Federer was the best match he's played this year. It didn't really, 
you know, there were, there were none of the lapses in the in the middle of it, and he didn't even seem particularly nervous to me. He seemed like once he got a break in the first set, he pretty much knew he was going to win. You know, J- Federer has said that about Djokovic a bunch of times in the past that that once he can swing freely and the nerves are gone, you know, Federer sort of usually feels like it's over. And he sort of got that feeling from the way Federer played in the second set. He could he could probably see that that Novak was was really feeling it and wasn't going to get nervous and wasn't going to give it back to him the way he did in Indian Wells. Um, so I thought the last two, you know, Djokovic started a little slow during the week with some some normal, you know, normal for him kind of three set wins, go, you know, running away with a third set. But then against Ferrer, he was you know very he was he was very good, very confident, and then even better against Federer. I felt like you know there were some shots in the first set that Federer normally he you know he he might intimidate or or make Djokovic a little nervous with with the, with his attack. But Djokovic, you know, he, he just seemed like he was ready. He was there. He knew he could get the you know he knew he could defend, and then he knew he could sort of turn the tables in the rallies. So um, you know, I think the big thing with his chances for the French is, you know, Rafa is not as good as he, as he has been not Rafa is, you know, not looking as good right now. So I think Djokovic must feel like that, you know, that alone must make him feel like this is my, this is my year. And, and I think, I think getting wins, you know, he not only comes into the French, you know, unbeaten on clay with really untold confidence. He, you know, he has wins over Rafa, over Federer, in the two tournaments, uh, you know that he wins in, in Monte Carlo, in Rome. I, I think that's, I think it's just yet another reason why why it seems like this is such you know this seems to be building up to the year for him. I think, you know, getting a win over Federer, you know, I think, it, you know, it's it's really seemed like. Oftentimes, it's Federer has gotten in Djokovic's way for things. He did at the French in 2011. He beat him in the semis there to really end his unbeaten run. You know, we for, you may forget that Federer has one of two wins over Djokovic uh, this this previous year back in Do, back in Doha or Dubai. It's one of those two. The other is Karlovic. And you know, of course, I almost tie it back to just thinking about really. Djokovic getting that win over Federer last year at Wimbledon, which was such a big win at the time. And I think we, you know, I think even now you look back on it and say, you know, you wonder whether Djokovic, you know, would get to this place now without that sort of, you know, really breakthrough win uh, to kind of really reestablish himself as a guy who, who we're seeing, you know, and certainly if he wins the French Open, develop into one of these all-time, you know, unquestionably one of the all-time great players. And and you're thinking about Djokovic and, and the French, I think the reason why it's such a topic of discussion that's not going to go away is is if he can win the tournament, you know, it, it puts him in a whole new plane of player with the career slam and we're getting close to double-digit majors and, and uh, you know, the pressure will be, you know, the, the pressure is going to be immense, but really, you know, what Djokovic can gain from it, um, you know, you have to kind of expect that pressure. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Djokovic said um, after this match that he really didn't feel like he needed to raise his game, gear up, do anything special for the French Open. You know, he pretty much seems to know that the way he's playing now, he doesn't, that he's, if he plays this well, he's, he's going to win it. 
Um, I also think in the past we've always hear about how tough Nadal is to beat over three out of five sets on clay, how that you know, is, is, would be so difficult. I think that's a little overrated. If, if Rafa goes down two sets to love, you know, he's, still most, he's still probably going to lose. Uh, but I feel like when you look at Djokovic now, who's going to beat him over three out of five sets on, on clay? He's, you know, he, to me, is the guy who wins the, who wins the marathons, who wins the sort of wars of attrition. He's the guy who wears the other guys down. Um, so I think that, in a way, is a help for him. It does, you know, and it does. I'm picturing in my head if, if you know, Rafa and Djokovic do happen to collide again, it would seem that you'd you'd have to give the kind of the longer the match goes, sort of check mark to Djokovic's side, which really I think you'd always put with Rafa for for so many years, and and it it just it does seem like the tables have been turned in that regard too. Um, you know, for, for Rafa. Uh, takes takes a, a loss to Stan Wawrinka in the quarters. Um, you know, much more the, it, such a in many ways such a strange defeat. In that match, um, Rafa all but had the first set in his grasp. Had four set points, I believe, at six two in the first set breaker, and just can't put the clamps down um, on Stan and. You know, Stan takes a uh, and then really just kind of withers away in the second set, which is another sort of um, you know thing we're seeing from Rafa that really you know really hasn't been apparent throughout most of his career is is kind of when he has been when he has been when the game has been taken to him he hasn't always been able to come back with the response, whether it's a good enough response or not. You, you really saw kind of one way traffic after such a surprising set there. Yeah. I thought this was, I thought, you know, this wasn't a good loss for, for Rafa Madrid. The loss was so bad. You could almost just sort of forget about it. And that's what he said. And he, and he said about the Rome match that he felt like he'd played well. So I think I almost feel like that's more discouraging. This was a match where he did a lot of the things that normally lead to him winning that build this momentum from he, he you know he would hit a huge forehand he would play a great piece of defense and win a point you know he'd get himself really fired up and then he would still and he would go on to lose that game or you know eventually lose the first set and i think it's a case of somebody like Stan who now has a win over over Nadal he he played really well and he played with this sort of confidence this a little more confidence i felt like that he could take some of Nadal's best stuff and still win. Um, and, you know, that was one of the best matches I've seen Stan play. We'll see whether that's an anomaly and other players simply can't do that, or whether that kind of, you know, the as they say, the locker room has sort of shifted with with playing Rafa, and people feel like that you know they can they can beat him on clay now because you know it, it didn't used to be that he that Nadal could play a pretty good match and still lose in straight sets on clay. And the thing that we're going to get after all these results here, strictly from a numbers basis, is that you know Nadal is indeed going to be seated outside of the top four at the French Open. This is um, this is something that for years we've really talked about as a possibility. He's and it's, it was more because of injury and you know really not having the chance to accumulate ranking points going into the slams. Uh, but it wasn't you know of all things, it wasn't 
an extended layoff that derailed his ranking from where it was. It, it has just been a patch of poor play by his, you know, obviously incredibly high standards. And, you know, Friday's draws are going to be, you know, on the men's side, especially is going to be, you know, one of the more interesting draws we've had at a Grand Slam tournament in many, many years. It's, you know, the most sort of drama that we've typically seen is, you know, is player X going to play, going to be able to play this player in the semifinals or the final? And it's going to go well beyond that uh, now. And, you know, we could be seeing, you know, a Djokovic, a Federer versus Nadal, you know, in the quarterfinals of this tournament. So, you know, there's a lot more drama that's been added just, you know, beyond what we've seen here in Rome, Madrid going into Paris. Yeah, I think, you know, Nadal's part of Nadal's lower ranking is that he was out later in the year last year. But you're right that he hasn't been as good, you know, even this year when he's come back, he had a chance to to get back into the top four and he hasn't and he hasn't done it. I don't think they should move his his seating up. It does throw things off, whoever he has to play in the quarters, you know, the other side is is helped a lot. But I don't think I don't think you do it just because he's won in the past without a you know, just sort of a one off change. And also because, you know, he, he isn't playing the bet he's not it's not as if he's playing the best clay court tennis in the world. You know, he just lost to Vavrinka. He just lost badly to Murray. Um, you know, it's not outrageous to think he's he's number seven. Of course, it's the French Open, and and you know, if if he's going to win, he's he's probably going to have to play Djokovic anyway, even if he plays him in the quarters of the final. So, so um, you know, it does unbalance the draw, but I think I think it's it's okay to keep him where he is. Yeah, like I said, only Wimbledon is really affording those um, subjective seedings. You know, there's a little bit of a formula that goes into it, but you know, didn't expect that from Paris, and I'm I'm glad we're not going to see it. It's gonna it's gonna add really just another wrinkle to you know a very big French Open for a number of players here. Um, you know, for the as we talk of the French Open, you know, for the women's side, um, you know, after Madrid and Rome. Uh, you know, there is there's more than the than the Serena Williams as the clear favorite narrative. Um, even though it would be, I think, pretty hard to argue that she still is the clear favorite. Of course, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really matter. I think I think a lot of these matches do get settled, um, sort of beyond our discussions of them. Um, but we're you know. The past two weeks, we've seen Petra Kvitova win in Madrid, Maria Sharapova win in Rome. Two players that, you know, are certainly certainly have shown what they've uh, really they've shown what they've done at these specific tournaments in the past, and have just brought them to bear once again in 2015. Here, um, Sharapova taking this title after really kind of a kind of a, a strange sort of dip in form after her run in Melbourne. A little bit of that was injury-based, but but Sharapova really right in time kind of brings herself back into discussion, and and it's it's only thing that she does because she's been, you know, essentially one of the top two clay court players in the world for the past four or five years now. Yeah, she, you know, I think this is a, this is a match, this uh, win over Suarez-Navarro on Sunday that that will help her, not because of her form. She doesn't, you know, I don't think she really, and she even said she really didn't feel like she played well until the very end when the match was basically over. 
Um, but these were the kind of matches that she won at the French Open last year, losing the first set, winning a close second set, and then winning the third. Really winning a match maybe she shouldn't have won just because of her sort of persistence and um, she, you know, she won a bunch of those at the French last year, and she won this. That, you know, that may get her back in that, in that mode. But I feel like she's going to need to play better than she played in that final. Uh, overall, though, you're right. The Serena, you know, obviously there are questions around her now. She had to pull out of Rome. She got beaten badly by Kvitova in Madrid, and that that match actually reminded me a lot of the la- match she lost at the French last year to to Muguruza. And you also have to throw in Kvitova now. You know. You never know what's coming with her, but she showed that she could she can win the French Open. It's it's you know it's within it's definitely a possibility. Sharapova is a possibility. These are two people who have won Grand Slams in the last year who are now, you know, pr- you know have won big tournaments coming in the French. So you have to look at that. You have to look at that as as those uh, those two players as more of a threat than than a lot of the others. And you know the other threats that we that we talk about. Yeah, I think it was. You know, fitting in some ways, you get that Suarez Navarro Halep matchup, um, and it goes pretty deep, and it's uh, it was a good one. Um, you know, these two, you know, obviously neither has won a slam before. Halep, runner-up last year at the French, um, Suarez Navarro really kind of continuing to build uh, upon sort of a mid-career, you know, where she's really realizing her potential. And, you know, both players, you know, the thing, the thing with each of them is that, um, that, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to have a tough time getting out of their head is that, you know, both these two on the biggest stages against the biggest players have been humbled pretty badly. And that's the only, and that, and that's really the thing that, you know, if we're, if we're talking about where we want to position these two in terms of French open threats bona fides for the title um you know they're going to be seated very high but you know when the when all the money's in the table and and you put Sharapova up against one or you put Serena up against another you know do you really have the faith that a Suarez Navarro or a Halep can break through and get that massive win you know to eventually lead to the biggest title yeah, that's a good you know that's a good question because the women's side the slams are different. The big hitters win the slams: Kvitova, Sharapova, Serena, Azarenka, um, and and they, you know that's who that's who wins at those events. That those players who can create their own winners. Halep can do that, but it's a but she always plays on an edge because she doesn't have the you know the height or the sort of the size or power natural power. Um, Suarez Navarro obviously doesn't do that. She plays with a lot of spin. She's a great clay quarter. Um, but she can't take over a match. She can have it taken from her the way, the way Sharapova did, and the way obviously Serena always did. So, so those are two great players to watch. You know, they played a great match in Rome. They're gonna, you know, you have to figure they're gonna be there in the second week. But, but I, I just feel like if if Serena and Maria or Petra or Vika are around and, and playing well, I think you favor them at a Grand Slam. Um, but they're definitely a great addition to you know to the to the top, to the sort of top ranks in the in the second week at a, at the French. And you know, we, you know, we've talked a lot about Serena and and where things are, and I and with her, and you know, it wasn't until the 
the open last year that uh, you know that she put aside really a, a string of three consecutive kind of early exits for her at the slams. Um, you know, goes you know takes the first slam this year. Um, you know, but it, it's it's not unreasonable, I don't think, even with what seems like has been kind of putting that putting those majors from 2014 in the rearview mirror you know it really doesn't seem like she to me has you know it seems like that is what we still could get from Serena is that sort of you know head scratcher type of loss you know not against by by no means against an opponent that isn't capable because of her talent to beat someone like Serena but it's 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 certainly not of the realm of question that you know on a surface where you know compared to hard courts Serena's had most of her you know the most trouble in her career that you know we could see really that slip up again at some point and and you know I think we I think this comes into your head kind of just on the heels of really two weeks where we haven't seen Serena in the final but uh, but it's something that I don't think can necessarily be discounted either it, and you know as you've written before about Serena it's not as if she you know she's kind of aware of of, of at the point in her career that she's in is that you know she can still be winning titles and winning matches but not winning it to her you know absolutely sky high um, you know thoughts of how she should be playing it's almost a goal that she can never reach in a sense yeah I had thought you know like I've heard her a lot this year talk about how she didn't feel like she was playing well, even while she was winning every match this year. So I, I sort of discounted the way she talked about her clay court game after the Fed Cup. You know, she said she wasn't ready, that it was a big wake-up call. She needed a lot of work on clay. So I, I sort of thought, well, she's this just the way she talks now, and she'll she'll be fine. But she was right. You know, she didn't. She almost lost to Azarenka in Madrid. She didn't play well at all against Kvitova. And she, you know, she sort of said, "I told you so," and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm behind in the clay court preparation for for whatever reason. So now, you sort of think, you know, you you feel like it's going to be tougher, a little tougher than normal for her to to catch up again, and and really feel like she can dominate at the French Open. I, you know, I feel like this is this is a tournament where if you go by what what she's how she's been playing and what she's been saying that that the that she has a little more vulnerability going into the the event. You don't feel like, she, you know, she's that it would take a a, a real crazy, you know, a, a loss wouldn't be as stunning as as you know sometimes as it usually is for her. Right. Yeah, we'll see the draws for both uh, men's and women's on Friday. We'll have a lot on both of those. Um, some picks. Um, Steve will break down the draws. During the French, I should also mention we'll have a lot of daily daily reports, um, really on the matches and um, and some previews going into each day as well, among among other coverage too of Roland Garros. So there's a lot to uh, that will be discussed and that we will discuss here on Tennis.com. Please keep in touch with that. And so with that noted, without further ado, um, let's make our way to Mad Men here. And um, like I said, if you haven't watched the finale, if you're planning to, you probably should watch it now uh, instead of listening to us talk about it. Uh, but but I, 
I guess I'll start, you know, Steve, with just kind of where I really my kind of my experience with the show and why I think it's worth talking about is I just, um, you know, every every episode for me in a way, um, what one thing I appreciate about this show is that uh, it's really, you know, it's really almost cinema in a sense that's been put on TV. Uh, I think it's I think it's that well thought of, produced over the years. I think, you know, you can obviously argue, you know, times of the show that, you know, have been its golden era. You know, certainly these last few seasons, I, they're, they're a distinct departure from where the show began. Um, you know, the timeline of the show bringing itself from the beginning of the 60s, you end it right at the beginning of the 70s. And I just always thought from really a, a an artistic point of view, um, it's really a show that has kind of, you know, I think rewarded a lot of a lot of viewers who um, who have, have taken the time to invest in it as much as the show's producers have done. I think a lot of what you see online written about it, some of it can kind of be overkill. It's almost, you know, it's almost become its own little side industry about it is is not just the show itself but what we think about the show after it's it's kind of like the monday you know the the mmqb but it's the Mad Men monday morning quarterback it's kind of taken a life on its own and you know there's a lot to talk about from the finale as well but um i just kind of want to get you to start just your thoughts on really this series overall and you know what you think you know if you think it's really one of one of the best shows out there because I do think it is. Yeah, I think it's. I've always liked it a lot. It's a lot like The Sopranos. Um, you know, the chief writer of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner. He came from The Sopranos. It's sort of Sopranos started as a as a kind of a gripping drama, and then you know, you know, sort of went um, went off in different tangents. Sometimes it felt like. It got it, you know. It, it got slow. It got away from where it originally was. But it was always, you know, it was always artistic, always, you know, always sort of literary. You know, it felt like, um, you know, like you said, like a short story or like, like a film. Um, I feel like the the downside to Mad Men was the time in between the seasons because by the by the last season I'd forgotten a lot of. Suddenly somebody would appear from three seasons ago, and I. And even that happened last night, and I would wonder who that person was, and sort of gave up. I feel like if it had been done, you know, if I watched it all as a binge watch, maybe maybe I would get more out of it, or, or would like it more. Um, but uh, I think I felt like the finale was was good, uh, especially the last half an hour, what they did with with Peggy and Don's um, resolutions. And even down to the very the very end, the, va- the very last thing that happens, I thought was was good. What did you um, what did you think of the uh, you know what did you think of the finale? And what did you think of the very end? What was your interpretation? Well, I do, I do think that the you know the 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 ending shot of first of all, I th- I think I to me was kind of a little worried, um, really almost up until the last few moments of. I think there's this tension that you have when you when you watch a show that you enjoy and that you really kind of want to see stick that landing because 
you know, for better or worse, it's, it's kind of judged. Um, and this is a show where I think it's, it's better to really take it in its totality, but a lot of it is going to be judged in how you finish it. And it's really the lasting images of, you know, the last images I should say of it. And so, um, to see kind of, to, to see Don, um, you know, at this commune really in a way with really only about 20 minutes of the show left and you're kind of wondering, you know, where, you know, where does this all, how does this all really add up together? And then, but by, but, but I thought that the last, you know, 10 minutes, especially there, I think it, I think it paid off a lot from this half season itself. And also really this specific show where, um, you know, systematically he's, Don has been kind of stripped of, of really anything that's really meant anything to him over most of the show's lifetime. And, and when you get to the really the last scene, um, and you see you know, Don kind of meditating there in uh, in a morning stance, and you're like, okay, this. I mean, you can kind of see the the show's point of of where he goes, and then you get thrown for a loop about a second later when this famous Coca-Cola ad comes on, and and that adds you know really almost a whole new sort of discussion as to you know you know did this really amount to to anything um for don or is it you know is it really just more a commentary on on the characters on the the era the times and and i think that that's you know that sort of ambiguity because i don't think matt is ever going to really tip his hand considerably one way or another but it, it is hard to for me, it it is hard to to even though it's really kind of on the nose. It says, well, maybe you know, obviously, it's it would lead you to believe that Don, in fact, at some point, did create this, you know, iconic, amazing advertisement. But but it, on the other hand, it is it is hard to think that this this journey that they put him through and this you know these scenes that John Hamm does as Don, you know, that they didn't amount to anything either. Like it's. I think it, I think really the discussion sort of is eternal with this and continues and um, and I think whatever way you slice it it kind of works which is the one thing I did really like about the ending because a lot of people have you know different points about it and I think you know any of the stories can kind of make sense if if you defend it well enough. Yeah, I think it, I think it was a good ending. Um, I think you know some people have said. That means Don wrote that ad. Some people said it just indicates the world that he left. I feel like it indicated that Don and Peggy wrote the campaign together. Of course, they didn't in real life. Uh, that was, you know, it's an odd thing to, to, he was, you know, Wiener was asked whether he would have them write, have them in the show write a real campaign. He said he would never do that, or a really famous campaign. But it seems that he did. It seems to me that it's, it indicates Don and Peggy, the way it ended, came back and wrote it uh, and, and, and created it together, that would be the way I would think of it. Some people think it's Don, some people think it's Peggy. It seems to me that the conversation they have at the end when he calls her and he starts by saying some of the awful things that he's done, he sort of admits that, admits all the things he's done through the course of the series. She says, come home, and he says at the end, he says, see you soon. In a right. way, it seems like those two needed each other. The show is really about them, uh, they were the sort of core of the show as Peggy becoming the new Don. I feel like they 
it brought them to get, you know, this ending brought them together is Peggy at the beginning of the last episode, Pete tells her that she's going to be famous. So people are going to say that people, someday people are going to say, I worked with Peggy Olson and she almost leaves McCann. She has to make a decision. She, and she's convinced by her boyfriend, the guy who becomes her boyfriend, that this is what she does. Well, she was made to do this at McCann. So it seems to me that she, they're pointing towards a real future for her and they show her at the end sort of working, um, you know, sort of the opposite of Don. Don acts, you know, Don gets the idea from not working, from traveling, from almost committing suicide. Uh, and she sort of, she's the person who works, almost works too much. So they, in a way to me, it means they, they need each other. And that's, that's what the ad indicated. Um, that's, you know, that to me, that's my way of looking at it anyway. And, and uh, Stan, who is you know, Peggy's boyfriend, as you mentioned, does say that uh, about Don that he always comes back. And th- there are some survivor. very, yeah, there are, he's a survivor. There are some very strong hints about that, um, you know, as kind of the way that you, you know, that you put it there. Um, you know, I, I thought, you know, overall, it's it's a, um, you know, you know, was it like my favorite episode of the show no i don't i don't think so it, it definitely wasn't in fact it was I, I think it's i think like i said this is an episode where it's really best put alongside all of the lead up that uh that they've built towards it and i think that you know the series has you know you could have actually in my opinion and i've seen people write this as well that the penultimate episode where Don is left, um, you know, without a car on a highway in Oklahoma, just kind of on his lonesome with this grin um, after um, just after, again, sort of removing himself from really most connections to his to his past. You you could have almost seen that prior episode for him and for many other characters as the end of the series. And and it would have worked. and, And so in the week leading up to this finale, I was, you know, curious more than anything as to, you know, you know, what could they, what would they do? Cause I, you know, I, I really was sort of in a way satisfied at that point. I thought that was a strong episode and I thought the one that preceded that one was as well. And, and Mad Men has had a good, I think a good run of season finales over its past few years. I think, you know, a lot of people have, I think a lot of people agree that it's it's a show that sort of needs the time to start to to warm up and generate but but usually the payoff is there um and i think that's really what this was too and and um you know you can you can kind of get bogged down the details of this one and that does make for a lot of fun reading and a lot of really good armchair talk but um but overall i think it's i think it's hard to to argue with with how the show sort of pulled it off. And, you know, it's really something that, you know, I'm still kind of have in my head today. And I think that on its own maybe says it did its job. Yeah. I think it was a better ending than the Sopranos, which I liked, but was very ambiguous, you know, just cuts off. And then I thought it was a better ending than breaking bad, which was, which was a good last episode, but I felt like it was a little bit unsurprising. You know, it was a little bit what you thought was going to happen. This was a surprise and yet it was it was a little bit of a feel-good element and 
it wasn't totally ambiguous. So I think you know I feel like this was the best. You really of- you're really left with what seems like a couple of different pathways, and all of them in a way seem to seem to be plausible at least. But it's really left up from that point on for you to decide. I think. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any. I mean, any other. Um, I don't know. I, I guess now I'm looking for just you know perhaps a new, a new show at some point. It, it is going to be in in a sense odd to to not have this uh, for a little while. Uh, then again, I have the Rangers and um, and of course plenty <laughs> right. of tennis coming up in the next in the next few months. But um, I did have to get your thoughts in there. We were talking about it earlier this morning, you know, on email, and you did bring up that sort of combined Peggy and Don um, theory there. And I think that's a really, I think ultimately of all the possible ways you can kind of think of how the show should go, it's um, it's a particularly satisfying ending when you, when you see how, um, and I thought really like Elizabeth Moss overall just um, showed just some, you know, from start to finish really kind of elevated herself and, and in the acting world is, is, you know, this is going to be the role that's, I would have to think defines her, you know, almost wherever she goes, just as, you know, it'll be interesting to see where a lot of these, you know, actors end up going because it's, you know, when you see John Hamm on a, on a movie screen, it's almost impossible to get, you know, to remove Don Draper from your head. And that really happens with, you know, so many different, you know, in, in any show or any movie, it's kind of like, you know, what is next? And I, I think, uh, you know, after a show that has been as celebrated and as I think lauded as this one, you know, that's probably a good problem to have in some ways. Yeah. I think, you know, the Peggy ending, you can probably, there are different versions of what people thought of, of the Don ending, but I think everybody thought that the Peggy ending was really well done. The, the, um, the, the phone, phone conversation in the same office scene. And I thought she was really good in that. And I think the other question to me is, what does Matthew Weiner do? He, you see David Chase, the guy, the Sopranos creator. I don't know what he's done since. I feel like it's also tough to come back um, from something this involved, uh, creation this involved. It's, I mean, it's it's a, and, and especially for him because it's, you know, not only a show that took I think almost a decade to run its course on TV, but I think I think from what I have read of his you know genesis of the show it, it started you know is probably seven or eight more years in the making before it even got to this point this is really you know kind of the magnum opus the life's work of of what he'll do and um you know as as i would say as bert cooper would say bravo to to all and that I've heard, I've heard he's going to talk about the ending one time in an interview at the new york public library sometime soon which is a couple blocks from me. Maybe I'll maybe I'll go check it out. But that's please what do. I yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I like I said. I'd be surprised. I'm curious to see what he says, but I would not be surprised if not that much is said as well. And um, yeah, yeah. We will see. Um, anyways, good Mad Men Monday talk. The first and the last one, unfortunately. But uh, we will uh, resume regular podcasting next. Um, and we'll get back to you on that. It could be any number of things because we have a lot to discuss when the draws come out. Um, and we'll get to that on the podcast, on the site, etc. So follow us, tennis.com, 
Ed McGrogan and Steve Tigner, thank you again for listening to the podcast. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.